Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good morning. Welcome to IFG Live and a whole day of discussion on civil service reform. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director of the Institute. I'd like to thank as well Oracle who's supporting this day of events, which is not only our core subject, but something that we've put together very fast to look at uh, the, the government's plans at the moment and whether we, or the country, can make the most of the interest that there suddenly is in civil service reform. And suddenly is uh, something that our, our panelists right through the day might contest because many of them have been working on this for many, many years. So we know the government's ambitious, wants to change the way the civil service and the state generally works. And that's been clear from the moment that Boris Johnson became prime minister. We got a bit more detail on the government's plans with Michael Gove's Ditchley lecture a few weeks ago, things like reducing the turnover in the way that people move between jobs, building up civil service skills, more experts and so on, getting civil servants out of London. Very much um, traditional themes with a bit of uh, energy behind them. And we started to understand the civil services version last week when Alex Chisholm, the government's new chief operating officer, set out plans for great people, new ideas and better results. So today couldn't be a better time to look at these ideas and ask what the government is missing, whether it will work, whether the government has learned the rounds of previous attempts at civil service reform. Do, by the way, send in your questions to this event. And if you want to say where you're you're uh, writing in from, where in the UK or in the world, we'd love to know. It is always uh, interesting as our audience for these things expands and expands. So I'm delighted with that to kick off our first discussion. This time is different, which you can challenge, and to welcome an excellent panel to discuss that. Let me uh, start with uh, Dame Sue Owen, who's former uh, permanent secretary at the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. Sue, very good to have you with us. I'm going to go as well to Baroness Simone Finn, who's former special advisor and non-executive director at the Cabinet Office and who's made a special subject, if I put it that way, of these kind of reforms. She's speaking today very much in a personal capacity. We have as well with us Ravi Gramurthy, chief executive of Nesta, and Jane Dudman, public leadership editor for The Guardian, who writes very widely about all these things. So I really can't think of uh, better people to kick off this day. And again, please do start sending in your questions, uh, which can be to all of us or just a few. Let's um, start off. Sue, if you would um, perhaps give us a few thoughts at the beginning. How much of this feels new to you? And is there something about this moment that uh, does lend itself to reforms which people have been trying for some time? OK, well, thank you, uh, Bronwyn. Um, I'll just make uh, two or three points at the start because we're going to have a lot of debate. Uh, I think it's important to log that a lot of change has happened. Um, so the civil service that I left uh, last year is very different from the one I joined in 1989. So over that 30 years, there are a lot more women, there is better leadership, there are uh, more professionals and better use of um, economists and specialists. So there was much more change actually has happened in that period than uh, experienced by my father, who was a, a government scientist who joined in in 1950 and left in um, uh, 1986. Um, so the second point I'd make is that actually most civil servants do not work on policy. Uh, most civil servants are not in London and are not paid very much. So I think we need to 
bottom out whether the debate is about those people or is it really a debate about policy making that is at the moment largely uh, in Whitehall. And the third point I'd make at the start is that um, the public and industry and the private sector in general have almost no clue uh, about what the uh, civil service is. And I think that's not helpful uh, in getting uh, the kind of diversity of people that we want in the civil service and the kind of diversity of thought. Um, and we can expand on those uh, during the next hour. Sue, thanks very, very much indeed. And lots, lots like I could pick up on any one of those points. But just your last point about, about the public having very little idea of what the civil service is. Um, can you spell out for us what the, problem, uh, the, the problems that flow from that? Well, you know, you, you do want um, diversity of thought. Um, there has been, uh, I mean, Michael Gove talked about this and I think he's right. There is quite a lot of uh, groupthink uh, around. We need more, uh, a, a greater variety of experience. I mean, in the US system, which I don't support, but you do have people coming in for periods of four to eight years with a lot of um, uh, private sector uh, experience. You know, we most ordinary people um I, I went to do a talk in a in a school in a very poor area of hull um two or three years ago to talk about careers and did a little straw poll at the beginning about you know what do you think a civil service a civil servant is is it a polite cleaner uh is it um uh someone who works for the government of the day is it a politician or is it a spy? And <laughs> nearly all of them thought it was a spy because they'd seen spooks. They hadn't seen any TV programmes about civil servants. But, you know, when you started to talk about the kinds of decisions that civil servants make that would affect them, like at the time there was a debate about whether breakfast should be provided in school and, and you, you try to kind of engage them in the thinking around an issue like that. Uh, you know, it became uh, quite interesting, but most kids have no idea mm -hmm. uh, how government works or what civil servants are, as it's not even something they would think of doing. Mm. I hadn't yet thought of opening up the film production wing of the IFG to make make some kind of series on it, but but that may it may come. One of our recommendations, Simone. Um, uh, I, I when I uh, started at the IFG uh, four years ago, you were one of the first people who turned up in my office with a passionate. Uh, um, uh, pitch about about the need for urgent reform of the civil service. Tell me what's on your mind as you, as you've heard the government uh, come out with its pronouncements. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. Um, yes, yes, indeed. Um, and, and thank you for inviting me today and for making it clear that my views are my own, not those of the cabinet office. Um, uh, I, I, as a veteran of the Francis Morton Jeremy Hayward uh, era of civil service reform, um, I, I, you know, I, I completely agree with Sue that. Um, that, that thing that there has been an awful lot of change because the fact is reform has to be a sort of ongoing process. Um, and there, there was a fair amount of form during the uh, coalition era. And some of that's become properly established. I'm thinking of the setting up functional leadership at the center, uh, the imposition of spending controls, um, whether these are working as we, as they were originally envisaged or as well as they could or should, that's another question. But there's certainly a real improvement. Um, however, my, my views would be that 
to, you know, too often the civil service has a less than perfect record of implementation. Um, and now we're facing huge challenges and we really need to have the people with the right capabilities and skills to, to deliver the better services. The technology is moving, etc. Um, so what's what I've been thinking, well, what is different now? Well, first of all, we've had we have the COVID crisis um, and that's shown absolutely some of the best of of public service. I mean, some of the work that the civil servants have been doing um, during this time has been absolutely amazing. I mean, the processing of the universal credit uh, claims, the the setting up of an HMRC website virtually overnight. Um, you know, it's it's been and the things that go well, they don't get credited, they don't get known about and they don't get written up. But, you know, the response has also highlighted some serious shortcomings and some real problems. So we've got um, and we've now got debt at eye watering levels, you know, debt GDP ratio over 100 percent. I mean, that's never before been seen in peacetime. Um, so things civil services back on the political agenda because it simply has to be now. Um, things can't go on as before. There can't be these endless meetings, endless process um, with nothing happening. And the culture can be hostile to innovation. So just very quickly, when we were identifying problems back in the coalition government. Francis, Francis Maud was very heavily criticised then for saying that things needed to change. And he always said, very rightly, that uh, we have some of the best civil servants in the world. Um, and I've had the privilege of working with them and, and some of them absolutely art articulated the problems better than we ever could. Um, but when Francis highlighted the faults with the civil service, um, it was almost seen as heresy, and he was he was quite attacked by some of the retired great and good of the service, for even having the impertinence to suggest that change was needed, um, even though civil servants themselves were keen to see change. So, and, and Jeremy Hayward um, was was a completely restless reformer, um, and now I think it's become a bit more mainstream to be able to say, you know what, we do have these problems, we do need to fix them, and that acknowledgement is is a, is a very important move in the right direction, and I actually think it's a rather brilliant legacy of the Jeremy Hayward, um, Francis Moore time. Um, so finally, big reform needs to change, challenge is huge. Michael Gove is a very high performing minister. His Ditchley speech a few weeks ago was, you know, provocative and inspiring. Um, and he's he's got a great track record and he is crucially aligned this time with number 10 and the Treasury. And I think COVID has given a unique opportunity to force the pace. OK, great. Well, we'll, we'll come back in a moment to what, what exactly we all think the, the problems are. Ravi, what's what's your take on this? And you've seen it from within government, advising the foreign secretary and uh, and, um, and energy and so on. Um, and you're now seeing it from outside. Yeah, thanks, Bronwyn. So I spent the last six years actually outside the country working on international development uh, based in the US. And it's interesting coming back into the UK debate, in particular, when you ask the question about evidence based policy. Uh, because it's a word that's been used for, for decades, but um, I think international development is probably about 10 years ahead of domestic policy and the US and US universities are far more grounded and empirical than their UK counterparts. So I do think the scale of the problem when it comes to experimental methods and evaluation is huge. Um, and what I think is exciting about the current moment is that we've not really heard, it, heard any concrete ideas from the government, but we've got a set of instincts and they do have incredible power to to, to to channel those. They've got the will and radicalism to use it. So normally you might think, well, will the scale of the problem be matched by the scale of the solution? I don't think that's a risk here. Um, and you've got a massive crisis where that can legitimise big change. I think the real test, though, comes with the fact that some of these ideas are so radical that they do threaten the power of government. 
So if you're really serious about evidence-based policy, it means experimenting, failing. Uh, it means pausing and not make, necessarily making decisions quickly because you actually have to wait for the evidence to come in. Um, and you have to be transparent. And, and that's fine in year one of an administration. Um, it becomes more and more challenging the longer you go on and when you start to own the problems. Great. Um, thanks for that. And, and, and Jane, your first thoughts on um, this moment uh, of change compared to the past. So at the end of June, when Mark Sedwell announced that he was going to be leaving as head of the civil service, um, I, I described it as a call to arms. And that may um, have been slightly over-egging the pudding, um, but I do think that um, this is a very uh, challenging time uh, for the civil service. Um, and um, I, I think uh, both Sue and Simone are absolutely right. There have been massive changes already uh, really welcome changes to the way that the civil service operates. Um, we have seen more women and and um, changes to leadership. And I think the changes that Jeremy Hayward and um, John Manzoni have brought in have been um, really uh, set the civil service on a, a really interesting path. But um, I think the there are battle lines that have been drawn. And I think one of the things is that we have seen a number of what feels different this time is that it can feel very personal, that there have been a number of attacks on senior civil servants by their own ministers and by the government. Uh, actually, sadly, that isn't anything new. Um, but there have been, I, I think this does feel um, different in a way that is worrying uh, to many in the civil service. And um, as the uh, General Secretary of the FDA, as Dave Penman has already pointed out, when you have this kind of attack, it is corrosive. Um, so I think it's not so much the ideas as perhaps methods. And uh, as Ravi said, there is incredible power here to make changes. But what I'd um, like to see is I'd like to see those changes being made in a more um, in a more um, in, a, in a kind of way that really brings the civil service on board. Um, it's certainly uh, different this time. This is government that we can see that acts very swiftly, despite the uh, impact of the pandemic, despite the impact of Brexit. There is still plenty of space and government resource for big machinery of government changes. We've seen that already. Big changes to the to government communications. And the announcement that uh, DFID will merge into the Foreign Office. The, these are these are very big changes, um, and I suppose it's kind of odd to say that um, change feels personal when you're talking about an organisation with four hundred thousand um, employees. But I think one of the things that some people do worry about is if you make change in a um, in a too difficult way, then that has a huge and really quite worrying impact on the willingness of those who are. Um, still within the civil service to speak up and to really do um, that vital aspect of civil service neutrality, which is to speak um, truth to power. And I'd make uh, two other points. One is about the culture of the civil service. I don't see, although many of the uh, changes that Michael Gove talked about, I don't think they're particularly new. Uh, many of them are good, but I don't think that does anything to tackle the known problem of um, what is really quite a bullying culture within some departments. So I think that needs to be tackled. But for me, the bigger disappointment is the lack of vision about public services as a whole. Um, and uh, Sue talked about people not knowing what civil servants do. And I think that is part of a much wider problem about the civil service being too removed 
from local public services. And I would like to see a really much bigger vision of how civil servants and how departments can work much closely at a local level. And I'm sure we'll be able to talk a bit more about that. Okay, Jane, thanks very much indeed. Just, just really briefly, though, you mentioned that this, in some ways this feels like an attack by the government to some of the civil service. What, what are you thinking of? So I, I, I'm thinking of, you know, there have been a spate of uh, senior civil servants who, who have left this year and um, it's under quite unusual circumstances. I mean, the fact that, you know, a civil servant is actually taking uh, taking his own employer to an industrial tribunal, that's that's unusual, you know, so well, there have been a number that, of... That, that's one permanent secretary and then, of yeah, course, the cabinet yeah. secretary going, uh, yeah. uh, going early. Yeah. Yes, Mark said, well, um, all right, so let's, let's, I mean, we've got the, um, some interesting thoughts, including about the many things that have gone uh, very well. Uh, Simone was talking about the functional leadership agenda. I am absolutely sure that 99% of the people watching this will know what that is, but for the 1% that, that was specialising, uh, encouraging civil sense to specialise in, in functions to deliver, uh, um, to, to, to get better at whether it's digital or financial or commercial and, and, and so on. And, the development of professions within the civil service, so trying to get this expert knowledge in there, something the Institute's very much uh, behind. Um, so lots of things have gone well. Um, I'm also interested that we've picked up on, on the, the, the fact that the public does not always understand um, what the civil service does, and in a way that this agenda of the government's is being driven, it seems, by government frustration rather than any public clamour to change <laughs> civil service. Uh, it is very much coming from within, which may be what partly what um, drives the, the, the sense of attack that uh, Jane was referring to. I'd love to hear from you now your thoughts about what should um, what should change. And we've, we've all acknowledged that much has changed already. Uh, and uh, Sue, thanks for mentioning uh, the, the greater number of women and so on, uh, which the civil service has worked very, very hard on. What, in your view, would you now like to see? So let's do it in a, 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 a different order. I mean, Ravi, let me come to you. So I, I pick out three things that need to change. One is this commitment to evidence, which I think sounds, again, very uh, familiar, but is actually an incredibly radical thought. So I think governments should set a commitment to say every single policy um, should be evidence-based or evidence-generating um, and set a long-term target that we will move towards that over the next 10 years. And the spending review, when the money is doled out to different government departments, it should be conditional on an evidence generating agenda. And what that means is things like auditing and evaluation being not just about money, uh, but actually whether outcomes are being met. Um, it also requires I think, a huge investment in innovation, in evaluation and in scaling, because we know that lots of ideas emerge, but often they don't actually diffuse very well. So I think that's a sort of big thing that you could do um, in the spending review. The Treasury really has to lead it if it's really going to uh, make a difference. I would say that the government departments at the moment are not well set up to really get their head around what evaluation really means. You've had a, a development of things like the What Works centres, but the only one that I think has really worked has been the Education Endowment Foundation. The others have not really been given the money. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing would be to try to think about this as a single civil service right across central and local government, because Again, uh, many people talked about how central government civil servants need to be connected to delivery and more practical. I think you're only going to get that if career paths reflect that. 
when I was in central government and went off to do a local government secondment, I came back in and to be honest, everyone was like, okay, yeah, whatever that, they were not very interested in what I was doing in local government. It was back onto the, the central government treadmill. Was You've got to feel that there is an incentive whereby you only become a, a senior civil servant if you um, have had some practical delivery experience. Jeremy Hayward actually tried to promote that idea, but it never really got um, implemented. Um, I think the third thing is around joining up. Um, again, the familiar problem, the biggest problems like climate change are going to require a whole of government response. And you've got to break out of the normal departmental routines and loyalties. And I think that requires more radical ideas than, uh, than, we, than we usually think of. Um, so one is why do we actually have such a departmental system? Um, and some of the attempts to try and make special advisors report into central uh, central core, I actually think are not a bad idea because it tries to break some of the tribal loyalties that get instantiated in our system. Um, but I think you also need to think about a cabinet office that is much, much stronger, um, but stronger by being more open and facilitative. I think if you try and ram this through as a sort of prime ministerial department, you'll get resistance. If you try and make this a shared resource, um, I, I helped create something called the Office of Climate Change, which is an attempt to create a shared resource between three departments. And that was where we actually created the Climate Change Act. I think those sorts of institutions are more likely to get the joining up that we need. All right, Ravi, Ravi thanks. And, and um, three very provocative things there. Let me, uh, and thanks for mentioning actually the, the sort of Rip Van Winkle th uh, effect that people describe of um, they, where they go out of the, the kind of course of all service to something else as foreign as a local government, let alone at business, and then come back with a sense of. Um, their colleagues just feeling they've missed out years. But I want to pick up on your middle one, uh, the use of evidence, um, because really, in a sense, what does that mean? Uh, um, and it's something people mention very often, but we've had a coronavirus um, program laid out by the government at every point saying it's, it's, it's basing it on evidence. Um, and yet there are real political choices that have to be made there. Um, or if the government says, look, we're going to put a lot of money into uh, left behind areas of the UK, that's a, that's a sense of political a political choice. Sue, I'd, I'd love your thoughts on what should change, and but in, in particular, perhaps starting with this use of evidence um, and how it could be improved, because we've all seen cases where it can be turned to any any purpose at all. I think one thing about what Ravi said is, I mean, that he said an awful lot of things, and I think one of the issues with this debate is that we do need to be clear about what is the problem we're trying to solve. Yeah. And we've already, uh, in you know, like 70 minutes today, uh, mentioned, you know, probably about 10 problems that we're trying to yeah. solve. So I do think that some uh, clarity about, you know, what are the key things and actually having a plan uh, is going to be important rather than just chucking all these things around. I mean, for my own view, I don't think that the use of evidence is the big problem. I think there are some bigger ones. But use of, I mean, use of evidence um, is very important, and you know we've uh, we, we've heard that there is there are issues about civil servants aren't prepared to take risks, um, and why don't we take risks? It's because there's lots of control from the treasury and from the from the NAO and the public accounts committee about the use of public money, um, so there is a lot of caution built into the system. Um, I mean, on the use of evidence itself, there is the issue of policy trials. There are a lot of ethical issues around that. But um, certainly in my own case, when we have suggested doing um, randomised controlled trials, there's been a lot of uh, pushback from, from ministers. Some ministers are 
happy to do it, others are not. I mean, when I was in DWP, we did do we did do some uh, randomised control trials um, in the labour market space, but uh, you know th there were difficulties uh, around that. So um, yeah, I think obviously we do need um, better evidence, but I um, I think uh, I don't think that is the biggest problem in my my own view that. Um, issues of things like departmental structures uh, being very inflexible are, um, are are more serious problems. Um, I don't know whether you want me to talk about that now. Um, uh, sure. Give us because I'd, I'd like to capture people's well, sense. Well, certainly on departmental structures, I mean, they are not responsive to new trends, so like digital and data, and they don't foster collaboration uh, either. Um, the number of people you have in a department depends on the number of people you had last time. So when I moved from uh, DWP, I had something like a thousand people doing policy in DWP. When I moved to DCMS at the beginning, I had 350 people in the whole department doing everything. I built it up to a thousand people, but it was a case of begging the Treasury for like, you know, another five people on the online harms agenda. So I think that, the you know, we never really go back to thinking how many people do we need to do a function or this uh, new this new thing? Um, uh, another thing I did at DCMS was to to get Bain in. They did it pro bono, some work on how many people do you need to run a minister? Um, and actually, we found that it was about 10. Um, and, and that, but actually, that's quite useful then, because you could then, you could see that some departments had lots of people running ministers and others didn't have, have enough to provide the kind of support you need. Um, so we do need um, a much better assessment of, you know, are we, are we resourcing the new things properly or are we still basically throwing resources at uh, the old thing. Now, there has been some flexibility on this over Brexit, for example. Um, we did regroup quite a bit on that, and I think there's probably been some, although I've not been there on, on COVID. Um, departmental structures also, um, they don't foster ministerial collaboration. You know, there are lots of agendas we've got in government now that are cross-cutting, but ministers still compete with each other. And you know, we haven't, uh, I think departmental structures too have have not helped us address some of the uh, systemic kind of failures that there have been. There have been systemic failures in some government departments and those, those haven't been um, properly addressed uh, over time. So I think the, yeah, for me, the departmental structures are actually quite an important issue that hasn't really been addressed properly ever. Thanks very much indeed. Um, Simone, your, your thoughts about what really needs to change? Oh, goodness. I've, I've listened to everything and agreed pretty much, so it's, it's very difficult. Uh, um, on, on the evidence base, actually, I, I, I couldn't agree more. They, there is too much assertion when you're making submissions. And, um, and the, the government has said they're going to look at the Green Book methodology, which is what the Treasury uses to evaluate projects, which has had an, which has had an unfortunate effect because of, uh, they're just so concentrated on value for money that they don't look at the wider picture. And that's why so many projects have only been approved basically in London or, or the South. 
um, or southeast. Um, so, so, so first of all, but but the other thing that they need to do is they need to go back and look at the policy once it's been implemented. I mean, it is actually in the green book that you're meant to do that, and I don't see that happening. So you don't work out what works. And and to go to Ravi's excellent point about you know you need to be able to to do things and and to fail. I mean, Francis tried to introduce the Francis Board Award for failure before we um, said, please don't do that. Um, but what it was was sort of, please, will you, will you, will you have the courage to do something? Now, several servants aren't empowered to do that, as Sue refers to this culture, this risk culture, um, and the, the, it's the Jonathan Powell point. I mean, there's little upside for resolving the problem and, um, and 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 making it different, and a huge downside risk for permitting something to go wrong. So this risk-averse culture has got to transfer somehow to a can-do culture, and that's going to be absolutely vital and to empower people. Then to quickly go on to the departmental structure, absolutely couldn't agree more. Um, that was the whole premise behind the, uh, the, the, the functions, setting out the common functions, functions across government, and particularly in the setting up of, GD, of the government digital service to harness data across government to, to, to make the digital service work properly. And the problem is that the, these, these demands for greater sharing are resisted. I think it's at ministerial level. I think it's also at official level. And it's, you know, the whole idea, the, the idea of government as a platform where you would join up policy. And that has to be done digitally, really. I mean, it's a great way of doing it. All of that seems to have sort of taken a back foot. And, they, they, and nobody would set up government using departments in, in a modern age. You, you, you'd actually look at cross-government policy. So we need to be able to harness the data, the technology, and that sort of goes into the, um, the having a stronger central mandate for possibly for, for these functions. And again, to talk to Ravi's point about actually giving operational people um, greater parity of esteem um, with, 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 the, um, with, with, with policy people. I mean, policy people are, policy is very highly regarded in Whitehall. Mm -hmm. And to get to the top, policy people. I mean, it's like the white collar part of Whitehall. And, you know, to give you an idea when we're talking about leveling up and, and changing and going to the regions, I, I can't remember which way around it is, but 64% of civils, I mean, most of the civil services outside London, but 64% of the, it's, I can't remember which way around the 62 and 64 go, but one of them is senior leadership being in London. And the second one is policy making being in London. And when we were setting up universal credit, it was completely mad. I mean, policy making was done in London. I think implementation was done in Sheffield and and IT development in Warrington. I mean, that's a, that's that's a recipe for something not coming together properly. So so I, and and I do feel that when you bring in these people to run big projects, they should be given as much authority and 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 the correct mandate across departments. To, so that you can build up a stronger centre of expertise, and that expertise has got to be used across government. And it's not a, an option for da data sharing in departments, but it has to happen. So I, I think I think those would be my my observations to mainly pick up on what other people have said. Great, and and, and Jane, uh, as as you write right across this whole um, waterfront, um, your 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 top points of exasperation, if you like. Or um, well, actually, just thinking about what's, uh, what everybody has just said, what occurs to me right, right away is what kind of a difference um, is this present pandemic that we're now in? The very fact that all of us are in separate locations talking to each other across technology. I think technology is going to be so important. And I actually think that 
in the new, I think what we need to think about is what is a post-COVID civil service going to look like? And in that instance, I actually think that if you have some people in Warrington and you have some people in Southport, that won't matter a bit. I think what's really been proven by the way that civil servants have worked so remarkably well through this crisis, most of them from home, um, has has actually, um, I hope, will give a really different spin to the way we actually all think about the way we work um, going forward. And I think that in itself should and would, and I hope it will, have a very big impact on the way the civil service works because i agree with with everybody else it's ridiculous that you know these the policy people are so elevated and and feel they have to be in whitehall there's another really interesting aspect of course which is what will happen during the refurbishment of parliament what will happen if the mps and the lords and the decision makers actually end up going somewhere else we don't know they will they might just you know shuffle a bit down the road but supposing they were in york what difference would that make i, I just think this is a really interesting pivot point uh, where um where actually lots of things could change and i hope they will and um, just two very quick points one of those will definitely depend on um, management and leadership across the civil service and I, I very much hope that you know that that will be encouraged it has in the past and I think there's been a lot of emphasis on 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 management and leadership but I hope that will continue uh, to grow and the other thing I think is to look at the the younger people coming into the civil service because I think one of the things that has really happened that has been interesting has the changes that have been made at the fast stream intake where you do see a huge amount of effort that has gone into getting in precisely people uh, who are diverse in every single which way you can and actually making those efforts to take the fast stream program out and attract those people in and I think that's going to be so important not this year not next year but as those people work their way through the civil service and I'd like I'd like everybody in the civil service to look at that and see what they could learn about what they're doing right now and think about it because I think that's been really important. Okay, that's great. Thanks. And I, 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 if you can see my eyes going sideways, I'm looking at the stream of questions coming in. Uh, <laughs> many of which touch on these, uh, these, these points. And by the way, if you're sending in questions um, and if you're in the civil service and don't want to give your full name, quite a few have come through as anonymous. Do give your first name if you're happy with that. It, it just... Um, Helps personalise it a, a bit. Let's let's kick off with some of the questions which really have been touching on on many of the things we've been talking about. Now, let me start with one from Joan Munro, um, and she says one of the issues is, is follow through on innovations. As civil servants move around, each starts new initiatives, but the next person coming in often doesn't know uh, and it doesn't continue and develop that initiative. That person will start something new, and so major innovations take many years. Does the civil service approach to moving policy people around? Uh, not prevent innovations being fully implemented. And there are other questions I've got in the, in the, in the list as well that say, and what about accountability for things that don't go so well? Um, who'd like to jump in? Not everyone has to answer everything, so wave at me if you don't want to answer it, but um, uh, who, who'd like to go first? Okay, so I'll say something about um, follow through and turnover. Um, there definitely is too much turnover. You know, there are people uh, particularly in the Treasury, who start a job and the minute they start to think about what the next job is is going to be. Um, so we we do, we have a, quite a loss of institutional memory as well about, you know, why is the system like it is, what were the discussions last time we had it, everything uh, tends to get done from first principles there. So I think we do need to um, have a longer uh, tenure in, in posts. Of course, we have tried to, uh, you know, encourage varied careers. So, 
you know, if like me, you spent most of your half your career in the Treasury, actually a spell in DFID and in work and pensions was very, very good before becoming a permanent secretary because you then saw, uh, you know, what happens about delivery. You got out of London, you met um, people in job centres in Toxteth or or whatever. Um, so, so there needs to be um, a bit of a balance, but I definitely think uh, we do need incentives for people to uh, stay in their jobs longer. I mean, of course, uh, we've had too much turnover of ministers as well. Um, that, that doesn't help, but we can at least start by, I think, um, trying to ensure that civil servants stay in their, in, in their roles um, a bit longer and are not disadvantaged when it comes to uh, things like promotion. Yeah, I mean, ministers do uh, generally have an incentive to stay in their jobs. They just may not have the, the choice, uh, where civil servants may have an incentive to move on because of pay and promotion. Simone, I can see you gesturing at me. Uh, go on. Uh, no, I, I, would say, I was going to make the point that it's not just policy people moving around um, and the institutional memory being drained away. It's, it's actually, you know, the operational people. So the SROs, the senior responsible owners for major projects. Um, I, I'm, people move over because they want to tick a box and say, oh, I've done an operational piece of work because it's, it's uh, the incentive is that you'll, you'll get a better job after that. But these are huge projects and, you know, and, it, and it's really important that people are given the right training for these jobs. I mean, I, we, we had the major projects leadership academy uh, set up with the School of Government, uh, with, um, yes, I, I think it was the, 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 the School of Government, one of the school, the business school in Oxford, actually. Um, and, um, and and that was quite important. You do need to sort of think about who is going to be taking on these jobs and then saying you need to basically be able to stay in post. And our incentives, again, are not encouraging for people to stay in post and see a project through because there's, you know, as I said, there's little reward for success. The, the incentives are that if you go to another job, you might avoid the risk of something going horribly wrong under your watch and get a, and get a, get a new tick in the box, um, as opposed to actually being rewarded for successful implementation, which is actually quite an important part of the process. So, um, so I, I think that that's, that's really important when, when we're considering how, how, to, how to get better results. Shane, oh, um, I was just going to say I, I agree, and I think this is a really good argument for um, what Simon and um, Sue were saying earlier about um, cutting down on departmental structure. If you have project, if you have cross-cutting project-based um, projects that teams who are, you know, much more, as it were, in their jargon, agile and able to to work on things on that basis, I think that helps. The other thing that I, I always feel I need to chip in here is that, you know, this happens in the private sector as well. Um, uh, the public sector, and, and I know that they need to be held to very high accountability, but this happens all the time in the private sector, just saying. Okay, let's go to another question from John Burt, in fact, saying, my experience of government was that the civil service were hungry for rooted evidence-based policy. The problem was that many, though not all, Politicians were not. They were intuitive and thought they already knew the answers. Many had no prior experience whatsoever of specialist evidence-based analysis. So should we start with reforming the politicians? <laughs> that is one view of the, I, I guess, of the, uh, that, 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 that does a neatly bottle, one view of the world and of the political job. R Ravi, what's your take on uh, Well, I, I agree. I can remember uh, joining the Foreign Office with David Miliband looking at a map of Afghanistan, trying to find out where 
the uh, you know where all the neighbors were and it was slightly uh, frightening and similarly in the energy and climate change department i remember thinking the american counterpart was stephen chu a nobel prize winning physicist and we had ed miliband learning how electricity works and I do think you've got a problem sometimes of the blind leading the blind, where we don't have deep expertise in the civil service and you've got amateur um, politicians who move around and have no incentive really to think for the long term. On the other hand, they don't go into politics saying, I, I, I want to become a specialist in evidence-based analysis. They go into it saying, I look, I've, I've, got, I've got a vision for the, how the country should be and this is it, and I haven't got very much time and these are the things I want to do. Um, I mean, Jane, what's your take on it, writing about the, the, the politics as well as the, the policy of all this. Well, I think that's right. And I think what happens is you see that politicians love to make decisions. That's what they're there for. Um, and sometimes it's extremely effective. When Tony Blair decided to do something about knife crime, if you remember back then, um, he got teens together and uh, and had almost instant results. Um, and I think sometimes that he didn't wait for the evidence. He acted and I think sometimes it can be easy to muddle up evidence and data as as Bronwyn as as the Institute keeps writing we definitely need much much better data to be able to make much better decisions in all areas but sometimes I don't think you need to wait for evidence I think sometimes politicians act on kind of political instincts and they're always going to do that it's a reality yeah can I make a point? I mean, I entirely agree that um, ministers um, can do rushed announcements and that they are part part of the problem. I mean, that's that 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 goes without saying. Um, what I would say is that no minister with 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 a big policy will not listen to sensible advice from um, fr from civil servants. And that and to go to the evidence and data point, the data provides some of the evidence, but you don't have it all the time. I agree. Um, you don't have what the consequences might be, which is why you should go back and look at it. But the fact is that um, once the decision has been taken, it should actually be implemented properly. And what we really need to look at is how those decisions, once taken, can be implemented properly once the minister has decided to take them with proper advice and warning pitfalls from the civil service. And you do need that sort of expert advice or that sort of advice to be able to, 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 to advise. Okay, great. Let's go on to one from Alex, um, from writing from Jersey, um, Channel Islands, it says helpfully. How can we encourage the civil service to have a more experimental outlook when the ministers do not have the same incentives, in particular noting that experiments may fail and cause embarrassment for the government and could ch challenge the job security of, of the minister? And, and Sue and Simone, this is I mean, a point that you particularly touched on. Sue, Sue do you have a thought on, on this about the it's all very well to talk about innovation in the civil service. And Michael Gove mentioned this in his Ditchley speech and said, look, we want more of this. But how really do you um, do you encourage that? So I think you 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 do need um, the government of the day to feel comfortable with um, both, uh, you know, the the ethics of trying things for one group, but not for another group. You do need um, uh, to be to be prepared to let some things go wrong. Uh, so I think I think those 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 two issues are are really important. But you can run uh, a lot of small scale trials, and and you know some departments do. I mean, international development, for example, um, there are plenty of um, small scale experiments that that go on there, and very often 
uh, it's very simple things that you find, certainly in the development field, very simple things uh, can be can be very, very powerful. So, for example, if you're worried about teacher absenteeism in a developing country, um, giving children uh, a camera uh, with uh, which shows the date and the teachers get paid when there is a photo of them in the class with the date there. That's a very, very cheap and simple nice, intervention nice. to deal with a very big problem uh, in some developing countries. So, um, uh, I think the you know the other thing is that the the kind of you you need it's important that you're not trying to do too many things at once, uh, and if you're not trying to do too many things at once, you then have a bit of time to to do some of these um, uh, trials, and very often uh, what you want is some trials of how things are delivered. So uh, universal credit, for example, which um, I was I was involved in. Uh, one of the issues there was was the hurry that that and the pressure that we were under, because actually in that particular case, not not the whole of the cabinet was behind it, and Ian Duncan Smith wanted to do it a lot quicker than not only we but some of the private sector advisors were saying. Um, and uh, as it's happened now, it, there has been longer, but actually some of the ways of delivering that we could have run some trials if. If there hadn't been the overall yeah. uh, hurry to 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 get things done, I mean, so Sue mentioned DFID as a really good example. Now, over ten years ago, um, the organisation I used to work for was involved in a big DFID evaluation of um, governance in Congo, and it turned out that it actually had no effect, um, and it was tens of millions of pounds. But DFID were fantastic; they actually. Uh, wanted to publish all the results, share it, funded follow-on work. And it was exactly that embracing of, of failure and learning that was really useful. But the second thing that resulted from that was a big commitment to not jump straight into large-scale evaluations, costing tens of millions of pounds, but have a cycle of prototyping and iteration to de-risk it before you get into the big uh, rollout. And, and that's policy cycle whereby you do lots of prototyping, as you get more confident, you start to go bigger and put in place more rigorous evaluation, I think really works. The real challenge though, is the sort of political rhetoric and the managing of those expectations, because you have to be able to say, we're gonna go really hard on an outcome, but we're not gonna to be too fixed on the means of achieving it, and we're gonna pivot. And that managing of expectations that your first idea that you're announcing may not be the right idea, but you're gonna stick with it, I think is a, a more sophisticated political debate uh, one that uh, ministers and the media need to be able to be better at uh, facilitating. Okay, well, thanks for those answers. And thanks. There's many questions really on that theme. Thanks, Stephen Meek in particular, and Michael, a teacher, making the point about not, um, uh, civil servants not, not moving around too much. Let me go to an interesting one on a different tack. Um, no, no name, but uh, what do panellists think about the use and power of the huge number of external consultants working across the civil service, McKinsey and so on? Um, McKinsey now becoming kind of generic for name for consultants, their perspectives are hugely influential in shaping uh, the civil service future. Anyone want to jump in on that? Um, well, I'm quite happy to, 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 to go on that. I mean, I, I think that external consultants can give a very good snapshot view. Um, 
Sue talked earlier about matching um, resources um, to priorities. And actually, some of the time that means stopping doing some work, too. And I think COVID's given a great opportunity to look back and say, what hasn't been going on during, during this time? And, and what are we not missing? So that people can be redeployed on, on areas of work, because it's very easy to set something up and then not ask why it was set up and why it's still going a few years later. So, um, so but... So, so an external consultant is, is very useful in terms of being able to give a sort of a perspective on stand back and look at it like this. However, I think there is a very big danger that the uh, external consultants become part of the furniture, that they're ingrained or embedded um, for, for far too long and actually end up becoming the institutional memory um, and while the civil servants and and it disempowers civil servants too. I, I think it's very important that civil servants have the confidence to believe that they can do what they want to do. So so I think that dividing line is 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 quite important and needs and and, and should be considered. Okay, great. Let's go to a pair of, of questions about about money really behind decisions. Uh, one from Mary Jacobs saying uh, universal credit would have been a much, I think she means better, there's a misspelling, benefit if um, in Duncan Smith's budget wasn't cut back. If we make a change, how do we make sure enough money is thrown at it to make sure it's going to be successful? And one from Eileen Murphy saying on delivery, I thought for a long time that we don't concentrate enough on the science of implementation when new initiatives get to the point of delivery. Very often there isn't the attention and the funding to make sure that that, that it actually can happen. Um, Jane. Um, yeah, I think that, that that second point is a really good point. And, and again, I think it applies uh, in the private sector uh, as well as in the civil service. And that is that all the excitement or the fun is in the setting up often of projects. Um, and, um, and you see it um, with the big major infrastructure projects, which is precisely why um, moves have been made to have better trained project managers across, you know, major project managers across the civil service, which I think has been an absolutely excellent thing, because all the excitement goes into writing a contract at the beginning, and we've seen what's happened with those. It has meant the idiocy of kind of, you know, PFI contracts where you have to you have to pay money to change a light bulb, I'm, you know, apocryphal, of course, but, you know, change management through the life of a project, which, and these are huge projects, a 25-year project, you need to be able to manage them right the way through, and I don't think enough thought has possibly been put into that. And I completely agree. Um, the problem with the universal credit was there were too many uh, objectives for the government as a whole. Um, it, in my view, it was absolutely the right policy, but the amount of money that was taken out of it compared to the sum of the three benefits that had been there before was reduced. So it was it was also being used by the Treasury as a way of um, saving money. So, you know, you've got to be very clear, I think, uh, what your objectives are and what, what the money there is uh, there to, to, do, to do it with. Perhaps I could make a different point about money um, as we've only got 10 minutes left. I think um, one of the blockers in the past to change has been um, that actually effecting change, given the kind of current structure of the civil service, is very expensive. So when I was on the civil service board and Jeremy was uh, cabinet secretary, um, the issue of pay for new types of specialists was a very big issue. So um, as Simon says, we, we, we've saved the taxpayer a ton of money by professionalising the commercial and procurement functions, for example. 
you know, having smart negotiators has saved a lot of money, but we've had to pay those people a lot more. And 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 it's washed its face. I mean, they have saved so much money. Um, now we're having to pay in the civil service a lot more for data science is and, and digital and tech experts. They are paid a lot more now than the than the policy people. And again, you know, that is right because we've got to attract those those folk in. As it happens, the policy people are now the ones who are are paid least. Um, but if you are going to make radical change you may actually want in the end a, a smaller civil service or certainly a smaller policy making more expert policy making function so you but you not only then will need to pay more to get that variety of experience in from from outside but you also need to pay off uh, a lot of people so um the cost of actually affecting radical change uh, can be quite large you know and if we move away from lifetime contracts to more tenure contracts or, or so on you're 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 changing the balance of the deal that there was in the past where people accepted lower pay because they would get longer employment and and a decent pension so i think if if there is going to be very radical change ahead along the michael gove lines um uh, you know there has to be an acceptance that the, this could be uh, it involve a one-off quite big um, uh, slug of money to effect that. Mm. Can I just come in on, um, on the implementation question, which is I think it is tempting to think of um, the evidence processes, let's do a big evaluation, tick, now let's roll it out, rather than A, let's do some replications, but also let's do lots and lots of implementation science, continually optimising this. And the, the, the amazing data that now exists um, particularly if you link administrative data sets, will allow you to do that optimization um, over time. And, and I think that's something that we're not uh, perhaps investing quite enough in. Okay, great. Let's try and get a, a couple more in before we wrap up. Uh, one from Claire Morm saying, what could be in a constructive role for the private sector partners in bringing about the kind of reform we're talking about? Anyone, quick, quick one on that, and I've got some other excellent ones coming in. Absolutely. I noticed that you've got Catherine Baxendale on a later panel today who did an external hires report for us when um, when I was in the coalition. And I think the using private sector people is is, is excellent. And, and it was very much talked about that uh, civil servants would benefit from private sector secondment and, and, and that private sector people should be brought in so you can learn from the best. There was actually quite a lot of hostility to that. I mean, a lot of external people who are brought in say this is a bit of a, a closed shop, a bit of a club, and the door only opens from inside. So th I, th I think there's got to be a much a much greater openness to learning from from better and newer and newer ways of thinking. The d the data, the um, the digital skills that are going to be brought in, especially, but but in other ways. And on the secondment program, I mean, I think that you know. We were meant to be doing about 30,000 secondments a year, or, or and I think there have been about 10. So, I mean, it, there needs to be much more openness in the in the whole culture to, to, to this transfer of skills. Great. I've got one for, uh, for Sue in particular, saying um, Sue Owens talked about a failure to address systemic departmental, departmental failures. Can she elaborate both on the failures and the failure to address? Okay, well, I'm not going to have a whole catalogue, but, you know, the obvious one is Windrush. Uh, there were systemic failures there. Um, and, you know, that hasn't really yet been addressed. Um, there have been issues in the Home Office for decades. 
And, you know, where, do, where does, there is no kind of body that is checking that things have, have been addressed and, and have, have changed. Um, you know, we have uh, quite a lot of uh, turnover in Parliament. So um, there, there isn't really a way that we can um, identify those kind of systemic issues and make sure that they do, that they do change. Okay, great. And then I've got one, um, an interesting one saying, how can we move towards setting outcome-based visions rather than specifying how something should be achieved? Mm -hmm. so should the civil service be free to decide how to do something, uh, how, to, how to achieve what the current government wishes to see happen? This sounds very abstract, but it's, it's something that the Institute writes a lot about, um, uh, of, of um, whether to specify the outcomes and, and let people work it out who'd like to leap in on that? Yeah, so I think this is where we've, um, again, gone slightly back in the under the new Labour era, there was a much greater focus on outcome-based targets. Um, and then over time, I think we've started to make more input-based commitments like the number of police hired or teachers hired. So I think going back to something which says, let's focus on outcomes would be great. Um, and I particularly focus on things like what is the effect size or the cost effectiveness of our current interventions and saying let's try and beat those um, because that provides a level of specificity at the level of the intervention not just the overall national targets okay and um, sorry simone do you want to say something no, I mean, it's simply that, you know, that there is far too much emphasis on process and it, or it's, it's which seems to trump outcomes far too frequently. And to go back to Sue's very original point about people don't know what the civil service is for. But at the end of the day, the, the, people, the citizen does rely on decent services and that's what the civil service is meant to be providing. So the outcomes are important and working out what the citizen wants is very important. Well, let's on that come to our final question. Um, there are lots and lots of other good questions and someone's let out a yelp at, at the description of the private sector being the best and throwing in Carillion and other things. Um, uh, uh, and in person, if we're in the building, <laughs> we'd be able to take that in. And sorry for those of you who haven't, whose questions I haven't got, it may be because they slightly overlap with other things that we've discussed, uh, but thank you for sending them. Uh, so let's go to the final one, which is how can this civil service be more inclusive and reflective of the whole country? We have the Whitehall bubble, certain cities like Manchester do not represent or reflect the variety of the North. How do we organise and develop the competency and capability of local specialists who are close to the needs, issues and potential for growth across the entire UK? Uh, last thoughts, everyone. So I was just going to say, I, I do think this comes back down to the idea of having a vision of wider public services that are community based, that are locally accountable and where civil servants actually have a role to play. And some of the ideas that are being mooted at the moment, for example, um, moving some of the um, civil servants from the Department of Transport up to the West Midlands, where that expertise, where there is that expertise in engineering, I think is very interesting and will also have the impact of, um, um, of, of putting people close to kind of um, uh, uh, communities that are diverse. So I think there are many things that, that could be done to achieve this. Great. Simone? Um, I, I think that absolutely we, sh we need to make sure we disperse uh, more power in, the, in this country. Um, Basically, the, the functions that central government is, is responsible for um, shouldn't just be concentrated in London. There needs to be much more proximity to the ground, to those who are actually making the decisions, and, um, and, and, and that we should be seeking to, to, to make sure that the civil service is, is, is much more dispersed. Great. Ravi? 
we can devolve more power to, um, we, we can sort of redistribute civil servants around the country. But I think the bigger game is actually devolving power to local authorities and city governments. Um, and I think the big um, way in which you break down the division between Whitehall and the rest of the country is actually having this idea of a single civil service. So you can't become a senior health civil servant or uh, senior education civil servant unless you've been involved in running hospitals or working with schools. Right, and Sue. So one of the issues about um, having more policy people out of London in the past was always the issue of access to ministers, but I think the COVID thing has shown that we can crack that one at a stroke with the sort of technology that we've got. I think um, when Jeremy was still alive, we had quite a bit of soul searching in the permanent secretary community about some of the deep social issues there were. I mean, Grenfell, Rochdale, and now we've got the Black Lives Matter. And, and thinking about, you know, did we miss something? Should we have spotted things? And of course, we do have members of parliament who are, and, and ministers who, who, who come from all over the country. And I don't think that we have a very good mechanism for kind of listening to what the what the issues uh, are locally that they that they they can tell us about and and bring to the to the party. Okay, well, with that, we're sadly going to have to wrap up. Um, as I said, lots more uh, terrific questions. I do save them. I'll throw them at panelists later in the day. In this long long day of this, I'm very struck um, as we were all saying at the, at the beginning that this is something that isn't being driven by public anger specifically at this subject. People um, take government in a way for granted. They expect it to work well. They certainly um, notice and uh, and complain when it when it fails. Um, but this is at, at this point being something, something that's being driven uh, by this government and indeed by the civil service, which has been working on this for a long time. And I think we've managed to, while we've gone over uh, some things that have been traditional themes, we've, we've looked at some of the things that have changed for the better, and we've come up with quite a list of things um, that do need to change. Uh, I wish we had much more time to explore that. Um, but I think we have caught some of the sense that um, if it's not to be too Pollyanna-ish, that th this time is different, um, or that there is, a, there is a blast of attention on this in the sense that government needs really to work well at this point, and um, that there's a chance to make use of this moment in bringing about at least some of this change. So more in the rest of the day. Thanks again to Oracle for working with us on, on this uh, and on much of our civil service reform. And thank you very much indeed to the panellists. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.